I want to tell you that my daughter, Carissa, you guys know who Chris is, right? Most of you do. That she is in college right now and is taking a very difficult class. The class is called Anatomy and Physiology. You know what? I'm four. You're four? Great, great. That's wonderful. And Anatomy and Physiology is learning all about your, your body. And she's having troubles with this class. Um, I had the mistake the other day. We had an elders meeting and I said, uh, yeah, Chris is having troubles with her anatomy. <laughs> her class is what she's having troubles with. Now, do you guys know what my father did for a job? Do you know what Grandpa did, David? What did Grandpa do? He was um, a doctor. He was a doctor. And so Chris was having problems with her anatomy and physiology class. So Dr. Grandpa decided to help her out. So what he did is he brought his special bag. And I want to show you what's in this bag. Do you know what this is? A bone. A bone. This is a real bone. Okay, do you know what bone this is? A leg bone. I'm done. This is a leg bone. That's right. There's your hip. And this is where your knee is. And I've got another and I've got another bone here. Do you guys know what this bone is? It's not a face, no, no, it's not a face. What is it? It's not a heart. No, a heart's a little softer than that. <laughs> so, what is it? You know this? This is your pelvis. And see that little box there? Look at how God made our pelvis. If that fits right in there just like that. Is that amazing? Okay, I've got, I've got a few more. I've got one more to show you. Okay. Do you know what this is? It's your arm bone? No, it's not your arm bone. What is it? It's your... No, it's not your arm. Okay, this is your leg bone. This is actually a left fibula, fibula and tibia. Right, Darcy? Do you guys all know what happened to Mrs. Kotke? You, what happened to Mrs. Kotke? She broke her leg. She broke leg. her leg just right here. This is... Uh, she got... And her bone literally shattered. And she is in the hospital. She's been in the hospital for over two weeks. And, and I brought this in to do show and tell with Mrs. Kotke on Monday before, or Tuesday before her surgery. And I brought this in and showed it to her. And she was a lot faster than you. She said, oh, that's my leg. And I said, exactly right. And I said, Carol, this is what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you will have a, a straight leg that the surgeon who was going to operate on would, would cut everything in there and put it all straight for her perfectly. Yeah, praying for my mom too, right? She can't... No, that won't work. <laughs> okay. So what I want you all to do... Now, this bone won't, won't really work, okay? That's a good idea though, okay? But what I want us to do is even pray for her and just remember that this, I'm praying that God puts her legs straight again. My, my father was a surgeon, said that he can't repair bones, but he could put everything there straightened up so that God could put it all together. And so let's pray for her, okay? Let's pray. Father, we, we know that You are the One who puts us together, the One who helps us in all things, and would pray that You continue to help Mrs. Kotke, God, to heal her leg. As his head surgery as has been straightened out, I pray that uh, God, you, by your grace, might bring the, the healing platelets to come and form the bone again. We thank you how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray for all these children as they go to uh, Children's Church and uh, they learn about Samuel. May you be glorified. May they be children like him who hear your voice and who obey your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can go to Children's Church and the rest of you can come and get your notes. Okay? A what? Well, there was a reason why I shared those bones with you all this morning, and we will we'll get to that. It's part of our it's part of our text. 
But my dad, you know, he used to bring his bones to our kids' classes. You know, I, I remember him bringing his bones, and the kids always liked that. I trust you like that as well. If you want to see some, they're there. They were transferring. My dad was in medical school. They were transferring from real bones to plastic bones, and so they're kind of giving them away. And so he, he got to nab some. And um, Chris has got them through at the duration of her class to kind of help a 3D model. So that will help. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open to Second Timothy. Our text this morning is chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. It's a, it's a great text, a challenging text. It's a good text for all of us. Paul writes to Timothy, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, the main thought of this section comes in verse 15. I want to direct your attention there. It does form the basis of the title of my message this morning. It forms the base of my first point. It clouds and covers everything that we are doing here this morning. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. This is a call to ministers of the Gospel that all pastors have a craft. Oh, it's not a craft like a carpenter and author an author or a surgeon, but it is a craft in literature. It is a craft in God's Word. And the task here is that the, the pastor is not to be ashamed at how he handles the Word of Truth. A carpenter isn't to, to be ashamed how he wields his hammer. Nor is a, a surgeon to be ashamed of how he wields his scalpel. He's supposed to cut things straight. An author isn't to be ashamed of how he or she wields their pen. So likewise here, for a pastor, not to be ashamed at his work, but for a pastor, it's interesting, his stakes are higher. I mean, a, a carpenter does his work to be seen by men. An author does his work to be read by people. And a surgeon does his work for the health of the patient. But when it comes to a pastor, God is the one inspecting. Look at verse 15 again. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not to be ashamed. The aim here is that any pastor, any minister of the Word would be able to stand before God and say, this is how I'm handling the Word. And I'm not ashamed. Every preacher preaches to an audience of one. Preaches to God for His approval. Now, the literal translation here of uh, accurately handling the Word of truth is this word, orthotomeo, which literally translated means straight-cutting, Ortho, straight, timeo, to cut. That's why I brought up this orthopedic illustration about the, the bones, right? Cutting it straight, cutting the bones, cutting the skin. That's what the task is of a minister of the Gospel. Is to, is to cut it straight. Not, not swerve to the right or not swerve to the left, but be straightforward. Now, there's, there's all types of discussion about what this means to, to cut it straight. Is it the stonemason who chisels away at the, the stones to create a perfectly flat plane in which you can place stones one on another? You know, if you travel to Israel, it's amazing what the Romans did with stones. Big stones that they had. And the mason would chisel away at it and chisel away at it and make it so straight that they could put stone on top of stone. Near the uh, Temple Mount, there's a stone that weighs 55 tons. It's like 25 meters long. I'm not sure. I'm guessing eight feet deep, five feet high, and it's straight, so it sits right on top of other stones which have been cut away exactly straight without any mortar. just sits there to this day. That might be what he's talking about. Some say he's talking about the farmer who, who tills his, his yard straight. He, 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 cuts, he cuts his rows into the field looking straight ahead of him and making sure that the, the rows don't go like that. Some say that Paul's referring back to his job of a tent maker. 
They didn't have fabric back then. They had hides. They had uh, skins of animals. And they would make sure they cut it just straight so they could sew them together so eventually they could make a tent and a shelter. We don't know exactly how this was used, what it means. In ancient Greek, though, it was used to describe the process of laying a road. Right? Lay it straight. Cut it straight in this road. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When the Greek translators translated Septuagint, which was the translation of the Hebrew text, See if you can pick up the word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Do you see this word there? Making your path straight. Cutting it straight. Cutting the straight lines. Make it smooth. Make it straight. Make it easy. To understand, that is. The words are hard, but, but cut it straight. And Timothy is to do so. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Go right down the middle. Make it clean. Make it clear. Make it plain for all to understand. That's to cut it straight. And this is in contrast, actually, to Timothy and those who were around him weren't cutting it straight. They they were taking serious detours. They were taking uh, different sidetracks. They were not interested in the important matters. Rather, they were making the way bumpy for everybody. Right, bringing up objections, or bringing up this, or going, going one way or going the other. If you see in verse 14, we see there are those who wrangle about words. In verse 16, right, surrounding, sandwiching this verse here, they're engaged in worldly and empty chatter. And the results of this isn't good. It leads to, verse 14, the ruin of the hearers. And in verse 16, it leads to further ungodliness. It spreads like gangrene. And we will talk about that when we get there in our text. But no surprise, these people who aren't cutting it straight, that call it Timothy, is cut, cut it straight. My first point is this, right from the NASB, to handle accurately the word. Or handle the word accurately, as I've always said. Verses 14 to 18. This is comprised of negative parts and positive parts. Verse 15 is the positive light. And verses 14, 16, 17, 18 are all the negatives. So let's just spend a lot of time here on the positive. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The call here is for diligence, and the call is for hard work. The Greek word here is spudazo, which is a very common word in the, the Greek New Testament. It just means zeal. It means diligence. It, it describes uh, a, a, an effort. In fact, Paul uses that in chapter 4. You can see in verse 9 where he says, make every effort to come to me soon. He says the same thing in verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Be diligent about, about trying to arrange your circumstances, Timothy, so you can come and see me. And so likewise here with the Word of God. It's just translated here in the NAS. Be diligent. translated other places. Um, do your best to come to me. But here it is. Be diligent in the Word. That's the idea. The minister of the Word is to do his best to present himself approved to God He's not ashamed of anything. Now, the King James Version says... Anyone know the King James Version at this point? Maybe you have a King James Version. Do you know what it is? Say, say it again. Start again. Study to, show, study to show thyself approved to God. Sort of. Close. You're very close. You just missed a letter. But it's okay. Here's a, a plaque that used to be in my office. It's a good plaque from 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, can you read it there, SR? Study to... No, what does it say, Chrissy? You have better eyes. What does it say? Study to shoo thyself approved. So you just missed the shoe. This old King James English. Study to shoo thyself. It means show, so that's okay. You're... That's right. To show thyself approved to God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There you see rightly dividing, cutting it. And this is a great... It's a great um, plaque to have in any pastor's study to keep that before me all the time. The problem is that it's been replaced now by a bookshelf. So, it's not up anymore. Maybe it can go up here. It's downstairs. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about it. But this is a great passage to talk about what pastors are doing. However, the King James just talked about studying, which is certainly a part of what it means to be a, a good workman. It's certainly what, a part of what it means to be diligent. You can't be diligent in the Word. You can't um, be well in the Word without studying. But there's something lacking in that. It's not just study. It's if it's head knowledge. It, it's much bigger than that. It starts with study, but then it goes to application, and it goes to your life, and how are you going to apply it? it it's bigger than just 
memorizing the Bible and knowing that. But it starts there. It's not as if you're talking about the student getting an A on the test. Rather, it's applying. It's like Ezra. I'm not sure if you know Ezra the scribe. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it and to teach it. Right? He's studying it to know it and he's practicing it in his life and so that then he can teach it and extend it to others. Paul said to Timothy a similar thing. He said, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. 1 Timothy 4.16 See, his interaction with the Word of God was, was far more than just teaching. Far more than just knowing. It was also to himself. It was to be his life. Paul told him in 1 Timothy 4.15 to to be diligent in these things. Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be obvious to all. Let others see your diligence in the Word. Let others see the progress that you you are making in knowing God's Word and loving God's Word and applying God's Word to your life and then teaching it in all different sorts of venues. And I just say here's a great application for all of you. I have rightly, I think, said that this is a a message to a pastor, but it does apply to all of us. I mean, all of us want to shoo ourselves approved to God, right? In In the manner of Scriptures. We all need to know the Word of Truth. And we all need to be diligent about learning the Word of Truth. Whether or not you're an official leader or a teacher in the church, you need to be equipped in the Word. And you need to know the Word. And you need to take some efforts in that. I love the story of Jim Elliott, uh, the missionary who sought to bring the Gospel to the Wadrani Indians. After making contact with them, these were um, savage people who speared a lot of their tribe to death. And He made initial contact with them. He thought it was safe. He and four of his comrades was on the beach in the jungles of Ecuador and he got speared as well trying to bring the Gospel to these people. Now, if you've read Steve Saint's book, it's a marvelous talk of how the gospel did eventually come to them. But when Steve, I'm sorry, when Jim Elliott didn't merely give his life for Christ in a vacuum, he first was diligent about studying to show himself approved. In fact, while a college student at Wheaton College, this is what he wrote in his diary. He said, My grades came through this week and were, as expected, lower than last semester. However, I make no apologies and admit that I've let them drag a bit for study of the Bible, for which I seek the degree AUG. What does it stand for? AUG. Approved unto God. That's the degree he was looking for, far more than you know, his letters with Wheaton College after them. He set his mind upon the approval of God and not upon the, the approval of men. This vision, 2 Timothy 2.15, is the, the vision of the children's ministry called Awana. I know some of you kids are in Awana, right? Stephanie, you are. Nathan, you are. Who else is in Awana? Drew, are you in Awana? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Awana, right? Do you know what that stands for? Are you are, are too, Brooklyn? You know what Awana stands for? What does it stand for? Approved workmen are not ashamed. It comes straight from this verse right here. And many people, our kids included, benefited from this program. The idea is to get the kids to memorize lots of the Bible so that they will be approved to God as to how they, how they live it out. They study the Word. Right? They internalize it. And it's good. It's, it's wonderful. And so I would say to all of you, to study the Word, make progress in the Word, and seek to obtain in your own study and discernment of the Word... Um, be approved to God. And here's the thing. I think we know this, right? We get this, right? We know we're supposed to be reading our Bibles. We know that we should be studying our Bibles. We know that God wants us to do with this. We may not live up to it all the time, alright? But we, we know, right? We know what we're, we're talking about here, right? But here's the surprise of this text. This text isn't so much talking about um, studying merely to know and to teach it also has to do with how you take the Scriptures and apply them in life circumstances, particularly for the pastor, how to apply them in the life of the church. And parents, you can say this, how to apply this in the life of my children, because you might have children who are rebellious, like some of the people in church, and you need to know when to be quiet, when to back away, and when to avoid. The uh, carpenter who takes his hammer, hammers the nail. Sometimes he hammers the wood, but normally he doesn't hammer the wood. I call them union marks, right? When you smack and you miss the nail and get, get a little bit of the wood. 
That's what my dad taught me. I'm not sure if that's right, Chad, or whatever, but that's what we call it. But they don't just bash the wood. They're not just taking their hammer and bashing all over the place. They're strategic about where to apply it. And so also, if you look at this text, it, it speaks about some times when the workman needs to be quiet. I mean, look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. See, there's a way that you can take biblical things and wrangle about them and not be an approved workman. And so, what Paul is saying here, don't, don't get involved in those, those arguments. Don't wrangle about those words. You, you said it straight because those people are just trying to get you off, trying to get talking about these things. You don't do that when there's worldly and empty chatter. And we'll talk about what that is. Like in verse 16, you're supposed to just avoid that because you're trying to cut it straight. And these things don't let you cut it straight. There's a way in which you can talk about God's Word and not use God's Word properly. See, not everything that is biblical is using the Bible rightly. Okay? Now, you've got you to catch, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying against some of those things, but just because you're using the Bible doesn't mean you're using it correctly. Let me show you what I mean. First Timothy, turn back there. First Timothy chapter 1, right out of the gate, Paul writes his first letter to Timothy. He starts talking about this very issue. He says, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus, that's where he was, he was at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. As the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Timothy is aware that there's all sorts of teachings circulating through the church. When he got wind of those that weren't orthodox, he was to stop it. That's a proper using of God's Word. Don't talk about that. That's not right. In verse 4, we see some examples. And I think these are things that people were wrangling about there in Ephesus. And not to do, not nor to pay attention to strange myths. I'm sorry, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogy, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, myths here isn't Aesop's fables or Roman mythology with Zeus and Hermes. Myths here are Jewish myths, Jewish traditions, where people would leave the biblical text and would go into supposition and assumptions and guesses and spend a lot of time there. And, and Paul said to Timothy, don't do that. Don't go into these myths. It's a waste of time. You're getting off the road. Endless genealogies. Think about that. You're referring to portions of the Scripture where genealogies are. But if you pay attention to these, and if you pay too much attention to them, you're not rightly dividing the Word of Truth. I mean, you, you can look through First Chronicles, and like nine chapters of that has all that genealogy and genealogy and genealogy and genealogy. Now, it's in the Bible, but to spend a lot of time in the genealogy, you're just wasting your time. It's a fruitless discussion, is what Paul is saying. Now, genealogies are there to show us the historicity of our faith. Unlike many other ancient religions that were just philosophies, our religion is grounded in faith. These were actual people who actually lived. And there is a descendant of David, Jesus Christ, coming through the line of David. But that's one of the big things you get. You just say, okay, where does it start? Where does it end? Oh, now I see the point. Jesus was a real person. But you don't spend a lot of time there. Spend a lot of time in the genealogies is fruitless and worthless. And there have been those who paid attention to genealogies. have been led astray. I, I wish I could bring to you this paper I got from somebody. It was about a, you know, it was probably 40 pages of handwritten stuff that was photocopied and sent to me. And basically, the guy was asking for help because he needed to go see Pope Benedict. And, uh, you know, nobody's believing him. And all it was was genealogy after genealogy and all these timetables and all these kind of things that was happening. And I was like, garbage can. But it would have been a good illustration to show you how people are spending time in endless genealogies. There's some sense, today, a modern-day example of Harold Camping from Family Radio, self-proclaimed Bible expert, I don't know if you know anything about him, but he's big in numerology. He, he, I remember him saying one time that uh, every verse in the Bible speaks about the Gospel. Well and good. But then when you come upon something that says Hezekiah lived 45 years and then he went to... Okay, 45, that's got to speak. And so it gets into numerology. So he starts figuring about, about oh, 45 is 9 times 5 and this is what it means. And just got way... Off. Did he get off track? He got way off track before May 21st, 2011 when he said the world was ending. 
His website was devoted to announcing that to the world. His followers spent much time and money propagating this false message. And what happened today? He's a laughing stock of the world. He went astray, wasting all his money. Little was done to build the people of God. And look what 1 Timothy 1.5 says. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the aim. That's the end. All teaching ought to aim there. Love from a pure heart. A good conscience and a sincere faith. And spending all the time in genealogies and spending all the time on these myths is not helping further the administration of God, which is by faith. And the verses 6 and 7 describe Harold camping about as better than anything. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Harold Camping is a self-proclaimed Bible expert. Now, he knows a lot of the Bible. He's a self-proclaimed Bible expert. He wants to be a teacher of the law, but I'm telling you, he understands nothing. Great Barometer, verse 5, ending in a love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. See, there might be lots of words that flow off the mouth, but the target may easily be missed. And verse 5 is the target. Look over in chapter 6. This is nothing new for Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. I mean, this was in 1 Timothy chapter, in 1 Timothy, before Paul even wrote 2 Timothy. It says, chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. There you have a, a perfect picture, right? Advocating a different doctrine. And what doctrine is he talking about? He's talking about the Gospel. right? The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that changing Gospel that conforms us to godliness. Right? Chapter 1, verse 5. we got this Gospel that changes us, but rather they're interested in controversies and strifes and disputes. It wasn't a new thing for Timothy. Maybe Timothy hadn't totally got it. Maybe he'd start to get the false teaching out of Ephesus. But maybe it's coming back. Maybe there's such a deep tendency. It's like a cancer. You try to root it out. And if you don't get everything out, then stuff still lingers around. And it was still lingering. And this was of high importance. Look at how Paul begins. Chapter 2. Let's get back to our text. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. I mean, Paul could hardly be more emphatic. He calls God to bear... He says, solemnly charge these people in the presence of God. And you might think he's going to come with some, some great command for us or some, some great insight. Here's what we need to do and I'm calling you, I'm calling Goddess our witness, we need to do this. He's saying, don't wrangle about words. Is that surprising to you? I mean, it's shocking to me. You, you think it'd be something big. And he's just saying, just, just stop wrangling, stop fighting about all these technical words. Follow what's right. Follow the straight path. Paul later will use the same kind of charge. Chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. This is Paul's task for Timothy. It's the task of every pastor is to preach the Word. And, and you see how, how serious and solemn it is. I solemnly charge you. So not only does someone have to preach the Word, chapter 4, verse 2, but he also needs to silence those who are heading into fruitless discussion. And there are plenty of people who are interested in fruitless discussion. <clears throat> John Bunyan knew about that when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Talkative. Here's what Talkative says. Let's talk, Christian. I will talk of heavenly things or earthly things. Things in life or things in the Gospel. Things sacred or things worldly. Things past or things to come. Things foreign or things at home. Things necessary or things accidental. Prove, provided that all be done to our profit, is what he said. And um, remember, uh, boy, I forget who it was. Christian was talking with somebody for counsel and the guy says, I know this talkative. 
You try to start talking about his own heart and his own soul and his own life and he'll shut up. And so that's what Christian did. He said, rather than talking about these things, let's talk about the work of God in your soul. And he gladly talked about the work of God. He said, no, what about it in your soul? And as he went back there talkative, finally said, no, I'm done with you. And he went on his way because what Christian was trying to do is get talkative to talk about his own soul. But he didn't want anything application-wise. He wasn't want to go to the fruitless discussion. And oftentimes, dear family, is that those who go into fruitless discussion are, are going to be going that way because they want to divert from the main thing. I remember playing basketball one time. And, uh, you know, I had used this as an evangelistic opportunity. I was working at the hospital as an IS guy and a computer guy. And there's this guy who kind of found out I was religious, if you will, found out I was interested in the Bible. And, and so, you know, his first question to me was, he says, what about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where it speaks about how women need to be silent in the churches? And what about the head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11? This is like... He, he'd been around enough to know that those are difficult things to, to deal with, but he's totally skirting the, the issue of the gospel. I can't remember how I responded back then. I probably responded badly and just took his bait and said, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's, you, rather than saying, you know what, this man right now, he needs the gospel. He needs the, the center thing. He needs to resolve that in his life. And I wish I had the wisdom of Christian talking with talkative and just pierce and say, well, that's, that's a good question, but let's, we'll talk about that after we talk about God's work in your soul. That would have been a better way to bring attention back. And that's, I think, how an approved workman deals with the Scripture. We need to be aware of people who are just talkers. We need to deal with them appropriately. Eric Raymond, church planner in Omaha, his blog, OrdinaryPastor.com, writes about the most dangerous guy at church. He says, I ask you, who's the most dangerous guy at church? He says, I'm not much aiming at an individual, so I'm looking for a type of person. Sure, we can spot the unbeliever who doesn't fluently speak the language of Zion. We can identify the person from doctrinally anemic backgrounds because they keep cutting themselves with sharp knives in the theology drawer. And of course, any Calvinist can sniff out an Armenian within 20 seconds. But I submit that these type of people are not the most dangerous people that attend your church, at least not in my experience. Instead, the most dangerous person in your church is the apparently smart guy who's unteachable. And when I say unteachable, I mean he's got it all figured out. He's the classic, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. This is the guy who seems to have lots of biblical knowledge. He can drop a 30-pound word and effectively argue his point. Very often, he is quite involved and appears to have all things together. How He's dangerous because the reason you not think he's unteachable. I think there's some reasons why he's unteachable. He's gospel eclipsing. The gospel is all about Matthew 28, teaching disciples who are learners, who are followers. And when someone's unteachable, they're not a learner anymore. He says he's critical. He says the guy's not being moved by ministry of the Word. He's likely gathering bullets to shoot at leaders. Quietly sits there listening to the sermon so he can pick about everything like a Monday morning quarterback. He's divisive. This is dangerous for a church. and inevitably brings division. He says, in my experience, division of church usually comes from a result of somebody who's not teachable. He's joy-robbing. A church that's teachable brings leaders joy. A church member is not, robs them of joy. It's that simple. He's a time waster. I don't mean that labor in the ministry is a waste of time, but I do mean unteachable guys want to continue to take pastoral leadership time up with all these arguments and just consumes time. In the end, he's a waste of time. He's a labor in vain. So what do you do with him? Eric writes, he says, pray for him, minimize his influence, watch him and the sheep, lovingly aim to teach him, confront when necessary. I mean, this, this blog wasn't aimed right at this passage. This is talking exactly what this talk, passage is talking about. About some people who are just engaged in other things and divert your attention off the main path. And we've had people like that at Rock Valley Bible Church. I, I remember one man came to Rock Valley Bible Church a couple Sundays. Here's the first question out of his mouth. Oh, I see you like to teach through the Bible, huh? When are you going to teach through Revelation, huh? I, I think the church really needs to understand prophecy. It starts talking all about this and then he starts talking about all this prophecy stuff and how important it is and after a few moments of figuring out what's happening, where he's going, this path of his spurious theology, I warned him. I said, you know, you need to be a teachable man. And um, if you are teachable and want to learn and engage in the Scriptures, you're going to find a wonderful place here. But if you're just going to take and taunt your theories and important things, which I don't think are, mis- are hitting the mark, you're going to struggle here. He never returned. Praise the Lord. 
that was an instance where here was a guy just getting off the truth. Just, let's prophesy. Let's talk about this. And I knew that was his pet peeve. He's going to talk about that. There's a bunch of others who come to Rock Valley Bible Church and after meeting them a little bit with a confrontation, I've prayed they wouldn't come back. I don't pray that with many people. But I've prayed it with several. By God's grace, God has protected us over the years. These people like to wrangle about words. Verse 14. This is a picture of a fight. Literally, the, the word is logo makain. Logo, word, makain to fight. They, they fight about words. They find it entertaining. They, they like to debate. They like to just put it out there. They like to just squabble about their words and whatever. Pulling people off the track. Verbal sparring, if you will. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have theological arguments or theological discussions. Okay? We should do that. I mean, Jesus himself talked about how not the smallest stroke or letter will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He's talking there about dots on the I and crosses on the T. Nothing's going to pass away until all is accomplished. So, I think dots on the I and crosses on the T are important. And through his ministry, Jesus thought they were important. He argued, you know, sometimes he argued on the tense of a verb to make his point. In Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees who doubted the resurrection was come with this concocted story about this, this woman who had seven husbands and then said, in the resurrection, whose husband is going to have her for a wife? Because she had, she had seven of them. Of course it's ridiculous. The resurrection is not true. And you remember what Jesus said? What did Jesus say to combat that to the Sadducees? Do you remember? Anyone know? You what? Uh, not quite. Uh, he's talking about angels. In angels, people will be like, there's no marriage in heaven. You're right. said that. You don't know Scripture. And then what Scripture does he quote? Do you remember? Quotes from Exodus chapter 3. I am the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He argued that it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You catch what he did? He argued on the tense of a verb that the tense says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It not says, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like they're gone. No, they're very much alive and well, and I am still that God because they're resurrected. They're with me. That's what Jesus said. Arguing on the tense of a verb. Words are important. At one point, Paul himself faced an argument in Galatians about the fact that the word was plural and not singular. Galatians 3.16 Now the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then Paul says, he does not say as to seeds, as referring to many, but he says to seed. Speaking of one, that is Christ. Singulars and plurals make a difference in the Bible. We need to be careful about where we argue, how we argue. Throughout church history, there's been importance in debates over single letters. I think about the 4th century B.C. One of the biggest debates, most important debate in all the church was the difference between two words. Homoousis and homoousis. Homoousis, H-O-M-O-I-ousis, as opposed to homoousis, H-O-M-O-ousis. Ousis means being. Homo is like homogenized milk. means um, um, whole, complete. Homoousis, Complete, exactly, Jesus is exactly God. Or homoousis. Homoi means like. Is he just like God? And it's all just this difference in letter I. And the church debated that. They brought a big thing together. The council decided the council of Nicaea. Homoousis is what we believe. Jesus is God of gods. Jesus is very God of very gods. You can read the Nicene Creed. It says about four or five different ways. Jesus is God. He's not just like God. And that's an argument over one letter. And I'm glad they did because it settled once and for all the deity of Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying you shouldn't argue. But some of it, you should pick the points of where you're arguing. I mean, Jesus argued for the resurrection. That's a big point. Paul was arguing for the, the Messianic promise coming to Jesus. That's the main point. They were arguing in early church history about the character of Jesus. That's the main point. That's good. But don't be arguing as if it means something, some other something about, you know, the, the notorious thing, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Whether they had that debate or not, I'm not sure. That's not a debate to wrangle about. Let's wrangle about the person of Christ, who he is, what he did. 
for sure. But not getting off track. And I know that down through history there have been a number of good arguments. A number of arguments are not good over words. That quite frankly, shouldn't be discussed. I mean, churches are notorious for fighting, right? What color should the carpet be? Or they say, what size of the spaces should be in the parking lot? Or my sin, what age should children be involved in youth group programs? It's like wrangling about words as wrong. I've been guilty. I've hurt people. We ought not to wrangle about words. I think even in the early days of Rock Valley Bible Church, I think, I think there was a wrangling about words more. I mean, we were starting a church. Nobody else is doing it right. We're going to do it right. Kind of the attitude, the arrogance that we had. We're serious, right? We're serious about doctrine. We're serious we can get it right. And, and as a result of that, there was no room for getting anything, no matter how small, wrong. I remember having a guy come to my office often tell me how my sermons were wrong. Pretty key guy in the church telling me about how my sermons were wrong. Um, I remember having a discussion with a guy who was concerned about a way. I, I put a document out to the church and he picked one word and he said, nope, can't do it, that word's wrong. And I said, well, uh, here's, here's, here's what I mean by that word. I just use it, okay, maybe it's not in the explicit biblical sense, but, you know, that's not exactly the way I was using that word. Okay, maybe we can back up. But that was not acceptable. To have that word, it has to be used in that way, even though in my common language I didn't use that word always in that way. I remember a guy came with a particular word of a particular song that we occasionally sung. And he talked to me about it. We kind of talked about it. I said, no, I... I you know, the, the whole message... Like, like here, uh, I, don't, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> but the whole message... It was about the sovereignty of God and our salvation. And there was one, one word that kind of maybe alluded to that. And he made a big stink about it, talked to me about it. I said, no, I don't think that's right. And emailed me. And so I felt even compelled to bring it down to elders at Kishwaukee Bible Church under whose umbrella we were at that time. We talked about it. We wrangled about words. I think the Rock Valley Bible Church, we've come a long way. We're not wrangling about words as much anymore. It's not that we're not interested in purity of doctrine. It's not that we're interested only in Christian unity at the expense of truth. Nor is it that we're not interested in reforming our ways. We are. We are looking at ourselves how we find a way. But I think there's a different spirit of Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, Phil, I'm not sure if you sensed it from 10 years ago when we started. Um, and I think some of this is my growth in me, probably. We don't have a critical spirit, critical of everything. And for this, I'm thankful. And I think some of the causes, the, the, the root of that or the fruit of that has really come come to really seeing just the gospel as the center and focus of everything and seeing everything flow from that. See how it's changed my heart. Um, in fact, even look here. What Paul says, he says, remind them of these things. The them are probably the faithful men in chapter 2, verse 2, but it could be people in church. We say, what? What are, what are the these things we need to remind them of? The these things we need to remind them of is chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember my message title from last week? Who can pull up that? I'd be very impressed. My message sermon title from last week. Who's got it? You got your notes? Jared, you're looking hard. Do you remember it? You know, if you, you're not going to hurt my feeling because I know the most people. Tina, you've got it because you're there. What was it? Remember the basics. Remember the basics. And that's what verses 8 through 13 are talking about. Remember the heart of the Gospel, right? Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David according to my Gospel. Remember Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, raised. Remember the Gospel. Remember the heart of the Gospel. Remember the power of the Word, right? That we may be bound, but the Word of God is not bound. That they're the elect out there who need to get the Word. And when they get the Word, their hearts will be changed. Remember the promise of God that our faithful God will reward our loyalty. And we work hard to remember these core things. In fact, even the, the core beliefs of Rock Valley Bible Church are right along these, these lines. We believe in the power of God, that God is going to accomplish what He wants, when He wants. We believe in the power of the Word. Therefore, we just open it up verse by verse, phrase by phrase. We expose the Scripture and we believe in the power of the Gospel. So I focus upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything's Christ-centered. And we focus upon that as our core values, the things we believe. So we sing about it. We pray about it. We preach about it. And we need to remember those things in verse 8. And here Paul is telling Timothy to remind them of these things. Going back to the main thing, as C.J. Mahaney said, to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's not the only thing, but it is the main thing. 
And we need to realize that the main thing we hold precious and dear and those things which are on the periphery we will dance lightly with. If we don't, it can go bad for us. Look what wrangling about words does in verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. It's useless and it leads to the ruin of the hearers. There's some arguments we get in theologically that quite frankly, okay, so it's this way or so it's this way. What's the difference? Nothing. It, if it doesn't make a difference in anything, ding, 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 it's probably not worth arguing about. Not only is it useless though, look what happens. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. There are ways in which you can wrangle about things and actually ruin people in it. You can fight with each other and you may win an argument, but you may ruin your hearer if you get them off on tangents. Look at the further, further end in verse 16. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. We'll talk about that. I think he defines that here. For it will lead to further ungodliness. Worldly and empty chatter leads to further ungodliness. It doesn't lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to love, the pure heart and the good conscience, sincere faith. And furthermore, look what it does. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene is a, a nasty disease. In fact, we're driving on the way to church and we're talking about gangrene. I said, oh, I glued a picture of gangrene on the children's notes. And Yvonne looked at it and was, <gasps> and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe that picture shouldn't be there. I don't know. I I'm a surgeon's son, okay? So I've seen surgeries. I've been with my dad in the operating room. I have seen videos about all this stuff. It doesn't bother me so much. It might bother you. But if it does, I'm sorry. But if it does, good. Because gangrene is a nasty, awful, disgusting, terrible disease. Basically, it's death that eats up life. It's caused by an injury, an infection, where part of your body starts to die, and then it, it, just, it just slowly brings death to everything. Oftentimes, smells bad, is difficult to treat. Oftentimes, the only treatment is just to amputate the affected area, otherwise the death will spread. You know, Carol Kotke was um, in danger of that. She, part of her muscles died. They went in there and took out some of her muscle because it died. If they didn't take out the muscle, it just spread like gangrene. But that disease, like worldly and empty chatter, should be nipped at the bud. Jesus compared false teaching to the Pharisees and Sadducees like leaven, which leavens the whole lump. Right? So get rid of that leaven. Get rid of this. Avoid that, is what he says here in verse 16. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Here, here's one example of what worldly and empty chatter is. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Verse 17. Among them, that's among these who are just having worldly and empty chatter, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Two men named, we, we found out about Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. He, in verse 20, he along with Alexander suffered shipwreck of his faith, probably because of some of this theology that he was proposing. But these are men who, verse 18, have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. I think that's an example of what this empty babble is, this godless chatter, this profane idle babblings, these empty words. They're words that have no substance and no meaning. They say the resurrection has already taken place. Now, to us, that sounds strange, right? The resurrection has already taken place? Are you kidding me? You think so? Has the resurrection taken place? It's not. It's a little bit like the Jehovah's Witness who might come to your door, knock on the door and talk to you and say, yeah, Jesus returned. I forget what it is. Something like 1914. Jesus returned. It's like, really? I say, how well is he reigning now? Oh, well, see, you know, and then they, but they believe Jesus returned. But I think it's empty as vain because there's, there's no proof of that. And so likewise here, the resurrection is like, what do you mean the resurrection? There's no proof. Show me a dead person who's come alive. And so here's my question for you. Here's another surprise. Where did they get their theology? Anyone have a guess where they got their theology? Because I think, I think we can know where they got their theology. Any ideas? No, no, no. Hymenaeus and Philetus. People who say 
the resurrection has already taken place. Where do they get their theology? This might shock you. So what? Who said that? What did you say, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, but where, where did they get this theology? The resurrection has already taken place. Did anyone speak of the resurrection already taking place a little bit? Huh? Paul, do you remember where? What did he say? Paul's a good... good. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians, okay? And uh, in that, listen to what he says. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. That's resurrection. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. It's the resurrection of every believer. We sit with Jesus Christ right now, raised. Okay? I think the Hymenaeus and Philetus took this text, a letter that Paul wrote, took these words and said, oh, resurrection's already come. We're already raised from the dead. And I think they took it too far. Okay? They, they implied then that we are physically raised. And I think that with this comes the denial of the body, the literal bodily resurrection. Because we are raised with Christ. This is it. We are, this is how we are. We've got resurrection bodies. We've got sinless bodies. That's... Not holding much substance if you know your own sin. But I think probably with that came the expectation of victorious, sinless living because we've been raised from the dead. I believe that these guys were the first health, wealth, prosperity teachers. They believe we've been raised from the dead. We're victorious. God wants us to have everything today. And just like the health, wealth, prosperity gospel today, if you can call it gospel, it upsets the faith of some. As it says in verse 18. Upsets the faith of some. Why does it upset the faith of some? Because they're hoping in this resurrection and then they see it doesn't materialize, right? I'm I'm still drowning in my sin. I I, I need help. Yes, through Christ we've been raised from the dead in a spiritual sense, if you will. There's a reality where we are sitting with the living Christ right now. We are are free, but we're still in bondage to our flesh because we still have the flesh. Not until we, we get rid of this flesh will we have our resurrection bodies. And they upset the faith of some. Some are following these fools. And what Paul says to Timothy is, answer a fool according to his folly. What you're talking about, resurrection taking place, it's folly. It's not happening. They must be silenced. It's the role of Timothy to handle the word accurately. Alright, that's my first point. And I got my second point. Um, I'm just trying to pray what to do here. I, I, will, I will preach quickly. Verse 19 is what I will do. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Paul called Timothy to handle the word accurately and second, to trust the Lord completely. Those are my two points. Trust the Lord completely. I, I think about... Verse 19 comes in the context of Timothy's real struggles. He's got real people in the church coming against him, challenging him, opposing him, accusing him. I think it came from all sides. And I think it's an incredible help to Timothy to say, your firm foundation stands. God is able. He's got everything under control. There's nothing out of His control. Don't worry about what others say or say against you. God's foundation is going to stand. It's He who said, I will build my church. It's he who's got everything in the palm of his hand. You have, you have one audience that you want. That's the God. You don't worry about all these people and what they're saying. And there's two loose quotations in the Old Testament, right? Having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. There's one quote. And the second quote, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, this first quote really goes backwards to, to help everything that Timothy has faced. All these struggles. I think they're encouraging words to Timothy. Because he knows the Lord's foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are His. And and, and if you know that God knows those who are His, all of a sudden just takes away all expectation of people pleasing. Because if God knows who is His, I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to vindicate myself. I don't need to retaliate. I just need to say, okay, you just wait and see. You just wait. 
a little bit like yesterday, I told us the prayer meeting, we we're handing out, uh, Tom Wietek and I went to the Sox game yesterday, handing out tracks, and uh, uh, there was a foreign guy there. He said, oh, what's this? And on the front, it's got some Sox trivia to kind of debate, if you will, and the back side is talking about God. So they say, what is this? I say, well, it's Sox trivia on front, it talks about God on the back. So this man from a foreign land, I'm not sure where he's from, but uh, he looked at the card, looked on the back, and said, uh, discerned kind of as Christian and things, and he says, ah, yes, the way I see it is, is we just need to get a good view and then the world will end and we will die and we all go to the same place. And by good view, I think he's euphemistically talking there about a good life, you know. Seek the pleasure, seek the good seat, seek whatever you want because in the end we will die anyway and that's what we be. And I, I correct him, I said, no, that's not what the gospel is. I said, um, that's not what I said. I said, real short, I only had like one sentence. I said, well, that's not the case, sir. Those who believe in Jesus will be raised to be with Him forever. I said, no, no, that's what you believe and that's what I believe. We could do. And, uh, you know, I can't remember whether I said this. I know I was thinking about this. He says, well, we'll see one day. I, I said something. I said, well, we'll see. Because he was set in his way. He wasn't going to change his ways. But I didn't have to argue or defend me. I think he looks at me as being a fool. Passing out his cards or whatever. And I... I just know that God knows who are His. I don't have to defend myself. I just say, you know what? God's going to vindicate me in the end because I believe Him. And we're seeking to please God and God only. There is a security that's going to help amidst all the difficulty. Now, this abstaining from wickedness quote then really points forward. It's talking about righteous living in verses 20 through 26 that we'll look at next week. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. It's really illustrated. Verse 20, In a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanse himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. There's vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. There are clean vessels and there are dirty vessels. He said, be a clean vessel. And trust the Lord with that. Don't stoop to their level. Don't be engaged in their wicked themes. You just walk in purity before the Lord. I think Jesus said it well, right? Remember when He said, I'm sending you out like sheep to wolves. Like, like there are wolves out there and you're sheep and they're going to look to devour you. He says, therefore, do you remember? He says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Know the danger, but walk in a pure, righteous way. And that's how we need to walk. We, need, we know the dangers out there. We know the, the people pulling us off the path. But we need to walk in the simple, righteous, straightforward way, which we will look at next week. There's one more comment. Phil didn't read number 16 by accident this morning. Both of these passages are taken loosely from passages in number 16. And I do believe that Paul was trying to say, Timothy, think about Moses. Moses had some opposition. Korah primarily, but then Dathan and Abiram joined his side and resisted him in every single way. And so Moses said, okay, God knows those were his. And then he goes back to God and he trusts him. And, and God says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness, i.e., let everyone who names my name get away from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram because as you get away, I'm going to do this new thing. I mean, Moses put it all in the line, right? When he said, if the... Here's how God is going to show between us. By this you shall know the Lord has sent me to do these deeds. For this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the faith of all men, the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings up an entirely new thing, and the ground, let me, the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them with all its theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you'll understand these men have spurned the Lord. That's a pretty, pretty bold, pretty big test. But that's exactly what happened. This new thing happened. Ground opened up, swallowed these men, squashed them, they died. They went down to Sheol alive. I think that's a big vindication of Moses. And so likewise, the call to Timothy, the call to pastors, the call to all of us, right, is know that God knows who are His. So we don't need to justify ourselves. We don't need to worry about our reputation but we need to abstain from wickedness and walk the right path as is typical of a servant of God. So that's the message here. Let's cut it straight with the Scriptures. Not only how we deal with the Word, but how we trust the Lord. Right? Let's handle the Word accurately. Let's trust the Lord completely. So let's pray.
Father, I would pray You'd equip us for these things. That we would know when to, uh, when to fight, when to argue, and when it's just wrangling about words, when it's useless, when it's worldly and empty chatter. But focus our attention upon Jesus and crucified as the bedrock of our faith. Remind us of the power of the Word, the power of the Gospel, and the power of God. We might enjoy His grace and extend His glory. God, that's what we long to do. So help us in these things, O Lord. As we go from this place, may our fellowship here in the church be pleasing to You. May our fellowship in our families, where the kids go. May it be a a time of, of communion with You and fellowship and encouragement with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.